Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ishani. This is One Does Not Simply Stumble Into Plate Tectonics. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkien verse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. Last week, we left off with the hobbits saying goodnight to Fatty Bulger on the eve of their trek through the old forest. We're on chapter six and seven now. The hobbits are in the forest, and almost immediately, their path is disrupted by these trees that have a, a sentience that's never really fully explained, um, shifting their path such that they, they don't go the way that they think that they're going to go, but they're actually forced into a part of the forest where, um, from the tree's perspective, they can be most easily destroyed. Um, uh, luckily for them, the hobbits get rescued by Tom Bomb. I almost said Tom Jones. Isn't that weird? (laughs) 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 Hobbits get rescued by Tom Bombadil. Um, Tom, um, uh, raises a lot of questions uh, in Lord of the Rings universe. Um, I think Tom Tom's character is probably going to be the the main topic of discussion today for us. Um, uh, and you know, I'm actually already getting derailed, but I wanted to ask you guys something. Um, do you think that Tom Bombadil's name is an anagram for something? <laughs> I tried to make something work with boob, and it didn't work. The only one that I got was DMT Bail Bomb. <laughs> Uh, which doesn't really make any sense, but let's see if we can get, if you guys all want to fire up your anagram generators. Bad limbo, Tom. And also, dab boom milt. Is that that a thing? (laughs) You can get doom out of there. So there's... uh, Okay, wait, no. There's Mad Boob Milt. (laughs) Which is somebody's cowboy name. Ooh, I like Dab Tomb Limo. (laughs) Uh, All right, we got Bloat Mob Dim. We're like losing followers right now, you guys. Uh, How about Um, Mad Bolt Mob? Toad Limb Mob. Amid Blob Tom. <laughs> a bomb told me. Oh well, there you got something. There you go. Mad bimbo lot. <laughs> I don't know, guys. None of these are really. Uh... <laughs> I don't think it was intended to be an anagram. Yeah. No. 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 You're. You're. <laughs> no. You're right. You're right. There's. There's no good anagrams for Tom Bombadil. I actually didn't even want to get into talking about Tom first, because as soon as we get into talking about Tom, I think that's all we're going to talk about for the rest of the show, especially because apparently there's this fan theory that Tom Bombadil is evil. Anyway, what I really wanted to start off with was this forest, because from like a literary perspective, the forest is so interesting. The hobbits are being manipulated, and they're not just being manipulated physically, but also emotionally. Um... Uh, and what's more, the environment, the forest actually, uh, actually has a hand in this. It actually is conscious of manipulating them. So the hobbits are, are in communion in a way with the forest. Um, is this something like, are, are there other fantasy stories that you guys have seen where this happens? Yes, actually. Um, there's a book 
Uprooted by Naomi Novik, uh, which has a a forest in it that has been corrupt. Oh, sorry, my phone just buzzed. Um, so there's a, a forest in it that has been corrupted, essentially, through reasons that are, for spoilers, I'm not going to talk about in great detail. But there's very much that same sense of every time you step into the forest, they are aware and they are connected and they are responding to the protagonist and her allies. Um, And it's a, I recommend it. I enjoyed the book, but definitely if you're looking for that, that's another time where I've seen it. I think she has a similar theme in her other book too, in, in Spinning Silver, where there is kind of that sense of the the surroundings being sentient in a way. Yeah. I think it's less explicit in Spinning yeah. Silver, but it's definitely something that she plays with. And I I don't think she's the only one. I I certainly think if you look to, for instance, Russian inspired fairy tales, I read a great trilogy earlier this year, um which is the I want to say it's like the Winter Witch series. Uh, I'll have to look that up at some point. Um, But it's really interesting Russian-inspired sort of Russian historical folklore books. And I think there is in the sort of Baba Yaga-style mythology very much that sense of the forest is changing and changeable and is aware to a certain extent, that you might pass through a certain section and have it be the land of midnight, and then the next day come back and it's totally different. Um, so there is, there are those traditions elsewhere, but you're also right that it's relatively unique. Or again, I think you see it more often in the folkloric-inspired style of books rather than classic high fantasy. Well, it's funny that you bring up Russian folklore, because where my mind goes when I think of a terrestrial mass manipulating human psychology is that Russian movie Solaris. So maybe it's more of a a tradition in Eastern European storytelling. I don't know. Um, Solaris is also a movie about space. And I do notice that when writers and directors these days want to tell a story where the environment is a character that has a mind, um, it ends up being a story about space most of the time. I've never seen a movie about a conscious forest. Have you? I think there's something to be said, too, for, especially in modern stories, most modern authors are not familiar with a truly massive forest, right? In the sense of, if you imagine back when sort of old fairy tales and old folklore would have originated... There were likely gigantic swaths of trees that may or may not have had any sort of trails through them. They might have had one road, and if you weren't on that one road, it was a free-for-all, right? And we're not familiar with that because there are very few natural spaces that are like that these days, especially in the U.S. And so we look to things like space or the ocean because they're just these vast, unknowable, natural things where you don't, you can't see and you don't know what's beyond you. But the reality is that, like, if you imagine walking into 
a proper forest where there weren't nicely maintained park service trails and there weren't any roads, wouldn't you have that same experience of you can only see so far before the trees block your vision and you can hear things around you, but you can't really see them. And you might not be able to really see the sunlight if the trees are thick enough. And that sense of I'm here in the middle of all of this and it might go on forever and I have no way of knowing is a really like it makes you feel small and powerless. And yeah, so I think the, that sensation. The closest that I've ever felt to that was um, a few years, actually many years ago now, Wanda and I actually went to Mongolia together and we we saw these like sand dunes in the Gobi Desert and we we kind of walked around a little bit, but they were really, really hard to walk on and climbing one was like practically impossible. And it made me realize that if I they were so big that if I was basically one dune further in, I would have no idea that they're that they ended just next to me. It would seem like it went on forever and walking on them was so hard that I was like, if I ever actually got lost in like a sand dune desert, I think I would die immediately. Yeah. There's what? something about that power, right? The power of being so large and so unknowable about what's right ahead. Mm -hmm. What I'm sort of hunting for in, in talking about all this is um, I, I guess some kind of implication for like a, a, a difference in how we fundamentally understand the, the man versus nature relationship, because I think about movies like uh, All is Lost or there were like two movies about like a man uh, versus the Arctic that came out a couple years ago. And these stories, I guess, that we have um, right now, uh, they, they can frame nature as an adversary, but not really as an enemy um, in the sense that nature does not think of itself as antagonistic to humans. It's more like uh, you encounter nature and you feel your own powerlessness in the face of how, how powerful this thing is. Yeah, I, I think there is an interesting parallel there. Side note, it's Ivan Bilibin is the illustrator. I had to Google it. It was just driving me nuts. Um, <laughs> but the there's an interesting idea there of man versus nature, or is it just that nature is what it is, and sometimes that what it is is going to be harmful to you, and sometimes what it is is going to be helpful to you? That is, I keep coming back to the sort of Russian folklore because I think that's a very like quintessentially Russian attitude of like, yes, the tundra might kill you, but also it's home. Um, Certainly, there's a lot in Russian folklore of like the wolf character in particular, where a protagonist will meet a giant wolf and the giant wolf will say something like, well, if you take the right path, I'm going to kill you. And if you take the left path, I'm going to kill your horse. And the protagonist will take the left path and the wolf will kill the protagonist's horse, just straight up rip it to shreds. And then say something like, and because now I've taken your mount, like, I'll help you get to where you're going or I'll help you on your quest. And it, so it's not sort of this straightforward, I am here to aid you. And it's not also this straightforward, I am here to get in your way. It's very much, I just am what I am. And you kind of have to take it or leave it. 
It's it's really interesting because everything you guys are saying in the last few minutes has been also exactly how I would describe Tom Bombadil. Yes. Oh, go on. <laughs> um, I, do we want to get there yet? I mean, I, I, we have a lot to talk about with Tom Bombadil, but basically just this idea of like, we talked about how the forest is not necessarily straightforward as the evil, right? And I, I think Tom Bombadil is supposed to be the the counter to that where he has all of the tropes of what should be a hero and a good character but doesn't quite come across as a protagonist for some reason um and then also this idea of him just being right he he even basically says this multiple times where frodo's like who are you and he's just like i told you man i'm freaking tom bombadil <laughs> yeah i think so my whole thing my journey with tom bombadil was starting out coming in having read this it's not a conspiracy theory it's just a theory but it kind of feels like a conspiracy theory on tumblr about tom bombadil is secretly evil and here's why and so i kind of had this in the back of my head as i get got to these chapters and i started out by going oh that's kind of funny but it's probably you know somebody is reading too much into it and by the end, I was full on, like, Tom Bombadil is an elder god. There is some, like, Lovecraft, <laughs> Cthulhu shit going on here that we just don't know about. And while I don't know that that means he's evil, it is pretty heavily implied that he's older than anything else in the world. Um, and certainly at that point, I think you kind of lose that modern conception or even modern by the Hobbit standards of good and evil. There's no sort of <laughs> applicable morality to a creature that is that old. It's just there. It just exists and is. This is the equivalent of like, <laughs> this is the equivalent of like the Jar Jar Binks is a Sith Lord theory for... The Lord of the Rings lore. Except I feel like this one actually has a lot of... There's some legitimacy <laughs> to this one. Wait, hang on a second. Ashani, I don't understand this theory that Tom is evil. Is it that being older than contemporary moral codes makes him evil? Because that doesn't make sense to me. I, I think what it boils down to, you know, I don't have it in front of me, and I apologize that I have not dug up this Tumblr post to reference... But I think what it boils down to is here's somebody with all this immense power who's clearly at least somewhat aligned with the entity of the forest as a whole, who doesn't seem to be bothered by the ring, who has this magic and this agelessness and hasn't chosen to do anything with it other than to sit in the middle of the woods <laughs> and and do what? And let the woods be. Um, and so there was more, of course, more details, more evidence, but it kind of boiled down to that. He doesn't even seem... He seems to be like... He doesn't even seem to have a concept of of good and evil though like it's almost like he's above that like he doesn't have an opinion on the ring at all he just kind of sees it and he's like oh yeah that thing and then he puts it on and doesn't disappear and he doesn't say anything about what frodo should do with it or where it came from or anything like that even though he clearly knows about it and okay i have a kind of weird theory that i'm gonna throw out here and 
let me know what you guys think. But the way that I read it was almost that, like, Tom Bombadil, like, is the forest, in a way. Um, like, not that he can control the trees, but that he is kind of the personification of of, like, the entire forest and everything it does, and that's why he can... he has control over what happens, um, and that's why he's, like, older than anything else, because so are the trees. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense at all. I... He was here, and I quote, Tom was here before the river and the trees. Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. I mean, it's like he's God. Yes. He is very specifically an elder God. We've been <sighs> over this. He's the land-born version of Cthulhu. <laughs> but, I mean, I do think, like, I, you know, there is that sense of he's too old or too powerful or too both to be bound by any sort of modern sensibility about what is good or what is evil or what is right or what is wrong. I wonder if it's it's that intentional like call out from Tolkien of you know how people say things like oh like if there was a god why would he let all these terrible things happen in the world? Mhm. And it's kind of like that where it's like he's there and he's very powerful and he could probably stop these things if he wanted to but he's just kind of above that. I think what ha what it does is it. I mean, yeah, I know. I know exactly. Um, that was smart sounding. Um, <laughs> what you know when when Tom Bombadil asks to see the ring, Frodo gives it to him and he holds it up and you see his eye through the ring. Oh, that was such a creepy moment. What that? What to me? What that? What that did in that instant? The effect was to recenter the moral balance of middle earth right it what what it does what tom bombadil's presence does is it makes clear that the ring um is not is not like the definitive moral center of this universe which so far it's sort of been set up to be um and maybe moral center is like not the best way to describe it but but basically i mean so far there's been only one enemy that's been named right and that's sauron um and and everyone else who is a free person has been more or less described as, you know, by default, um, Sauron's potential victim. What Tom Bombadil's presence does is it makes clear that that is only, um, it, there's a, there's a larger contest or, or yeah, there's a larger, there's a larger moral context that exists outside of that struggle. And I think there is a way in which it shifts the perspective on this great and grand struggle because it isn't, oh, this is some unknowable, unthinkable evil that has created the ring. It is not something that is older than the dawn of time that can never really be stopped. It is a person still, and a person with his own ambitions and his own flaws that is ultimately responsible for this. And so while there is definitely that sense of scale in a hobbit being the one to challenge the the lord of Mordor, in other ways, the presence of Tom helps balance that out a little bit because to Tom, even the elves are young 
and even the wizards are young and the idea of rain is young to Tom Bombadil and so there's that sense of maybe that's what makes Frodo an okay champion because ultimately the source of evil is just a person and so the thing that it takes to defeat him is another person yeah I mean so one of the most commonly talked about things around Tom Bombadil is why he's left out of the movies, right? Like, it, in general, people who are fans of Lord of the Rings as books think highly of the movies and what they and how they represented the books. But the one major complaint always is, where was Tom Bombadil? Why was he left out? And I was thinking about it as reading these chapters because I, I was trying to think of it in the sense of, why are these chapters here, right? Why is why does this character come up exactly one time in this book? What is the purpose of having this here? And I think that actually might be it, where it's kind of giving that, that grounding of, hey, like, you know, this story is really important and this ring is really important. And yes, this is an all-time battle between good and evil, but also it's not everything. Like, there are things that will go on. I don't want to say I'm angry now, but I definitely feel some sort of way about this not being in the movies at this point, because you think about, you think about what the story is without this mythological component to it. Um, I think in the movies, Sauron is seen not only as an evil being, but as literally uh, like representative of the devil. Um, he's the embodiment of evil. Now reading these chapters, it feels more like he's the embodiment of something evil, which seems to be really different. Yeah, I yeah. mean, as as I was reading it, I felt like I kind of got why they took it out of the movies because I think it would be really hard to represent this kind of subtlety in movie form. Um especially because it only appears one time. I think it takes longer in a visual format to tell this kind of story. And I also, but as we're talking about it more now, I think, I think I'm coming around to the fact that Tolkien was writing a full mythology, whereas the movies tell a single story. And part of that's a function of, you know, it's capitalism and you want to make a big budget film that's going to appeal to the most people possible and intense theological or moral questions prompted by a dude who goes around singing about himself in the third person, like probably not going to appeal to a super wide range of moviegoers. But it's also really interesting to talk about it here. So I'm glad that we get to get into Tom Bombadil. What do you guys think the significance of, of Goldberry is? We haven't really talked about her presence here. Side note, one of the other uh, potential names we were thinking about for our cats was Tomba Middle and Goldberry. But <laughs> Well, um, now really, I'm glad you cool. didn't go with that. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, just too much power. Yeah. Although, you know, very cat like. Um those would be good names for um, like mini pigs. <laughs> but yeah, like what? It, or horses. What is she doing in in these chapters? Like, why is she included? What is the significance of having her character there? Because 
it definitely doesn't feel like she has the same kind of power as Tom, but also she is she's clearly somewhat powerful and she's very intentionally included here. She's just there to turn Tom into a wife guy. <laughs> Tom is such a wife Honestly, guy. Honestly, <laughs> I kind of think like I know you said that as a joke, but I kind of think you're right in a way that we get a lot of information about Goldberry pretty early on, and it's clear the hobbits have heard of her because Frodo refers to the fact that the songs that people sing about her now make sense. Um, and we know that she's the daughter of the river, so we can assume she's essentially some sort of river spirit herself. But what she does, interestingly, is that we have this entity who's super old and super mysterious and unknowable and potentially incredibly powerful, given that he doesn't seem to be affected by the ring at all. But what he wants isn't power, and what he wants isn't to rule the world or to have complete control over things. What he wants is ultimately small, or at least it seems that way, that what he wants is to be at home with his wife, whom he loves very much, and to bring her flowers and to dote on her and eat good food and, and live quietly, which is interesting in the context of everything we've talked about and my staunch belief that Tom Bombadil is the Tolkienverse equivalent of an elder god to think about like, well, what do you do if you've been around forever and you have all this unknowable power what's going to make you happy a wife so wait this theory of tom bombadil is an elder god so what's scary about that is the idea that he has an agenda or what mm, it's not even that he has an agenda of his own it's that he's so powerful like and i'm not you know being totally serious about these references to Lovecraftian mythology. The dude was a racist and I don't like him. Um, but that sense of here is an entity who is so beyond the scope of what the human mind can comprehend in terms of his power that all we can do is sort of get our best approximation of what he's capable of. And even that doesn't come close, right? That sense is is kind of what I'm referring to when I call him an elder god of he is so powerful that we can't really wrap our heads around it. Yeah, that bit about about him being so powerful that we can't really comprehend him it sort of goes a long way towards explaining why there's these things about about Tom that are kind of like hyperhuman. Like he wears extremely colorful clothing, he speaks in rhyme. Like his name is metric, something I noticed. Tom Bombadil has like a there's like a meter to it. Um, anyway, it's almost like all this stuff is overcompensating for the fact that, that he is he's actually unknowable and exists like only in the realm of forms or something. At this point, I'd just like to imagine for a second that like none of this was intended by Tolkien and this was just supposed to be a some dude that like very benevolently rescued them in the forest. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we just like are seeing things everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you think so, though? Because like, No, I don't think so, because the fact that the ring doesn't affect him is deeply meaningful, clearly. Yes. Well, and I think there's enough evidence there to say, like, he's not set up as just an ordinary or very pure individual, because 
even if nothing else, I think we always have to come back to not only is he not doesn't seem to be swayed by the ring, but the ring doesn't turn him invisible. Yeah, that that was really interesting. And he he can also still see Frodo when he's wearing the ring. Mm -hmm. It really is like, I mean, like what we talked about, I think a few episodes ago in the episode that I'm currently editing um, was how invisibility is sort of the wrong way to think about what the ring does to you. It's more like you become visible on a different plane and the more that you wear the ring the less you become visible in this world you literally fade away and the more you become visible on the plane that the the black riders and and other uh, other minions of sauron exist on right and so to the extent that tom does not become invisible when he puts the ring on it it, that signals sort of a, a lack of mobility between this and the other this and the other world right hmm Right. Or alternatively, that he, <laughs> um, I well, you know what, I, I don't even know that I believe this, but I'm just going to say it because I feel like I have to at this point. Or alternatively, that he is not an entity that is limited to a single plane. Right. This idea of you have to exist in one or the other. Mm-hmm. Because he can also see Frodo. And I think the sort of the piece of that is that he can see Frodo when Frodo goes invisible and if we think about it as goes to this other level of existence tom bombadil clearly has access to that somehow so uh tom bombadil is has become worlds in a real (laughs) deep internet cut Okay, I'm calling a hard stop on this discussion because, Ashani, I know you have somewhere to be. But I did want to give us a few minutes because there's cool stuff from these chapters that we haven't actually gotten a chance to talk about. So I am inaugurating a open season for a few minutes. <laughs> Quick fire round. Exactly, exactly. If you have things that were important to you from these chapters that you haven't gotten to talk about, uh, speak now. Navia, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, first of all, Mary's the real MVP of this chapter. Uh, we Shout didn't really out. talk about it, but man, he is so grounded and reasonable and keeps them positive the whole time. Good job, Mary. You go. Um, I think my quick fire topic is that I really thought it was interesting how much there is songs or poetry as a kind of magic in these chapters that we sort of have already seen the hobbits are singing in this very practical, functional sense of it gets them through these different daily tasks. And we see the elves singing in like a pseudo-religious context a couple of chapters back. And then when Tom sings, it's very clearly like tied to magic that Tom gives the hobbits a song to call him if they're in trouble and he talks about the willow as being a singer when he's talking about the willow ensnaring travelers and so there's this really interesting like intratextual storytelling was the phrase i came up with to try and get at what songs do but they're also imbued with this power to do more than that they're not just there to give us more information or to provide world building they seem to actually function actively 
in the world as a mechanism for some kind of change or some kind of progress or growth, which I also thought was really interesting because there's a hilarious anecdote about Tolkien being a real shit teacher when he was at Oxford and two students would show up to his class, even though he tried really hard to get them to not show up by being a crap teacher. And the two students who showed up and made him teach, made him teach for a whole semester. And one of those students was Diana Wynne-Jones, who later writes a book that revolves around a plot point where a poem becomes a spell. So I just thought that was a fun little thing that I noticed that kind of like you were saying in the beginning about the forest, Wanda, is not really an idea that I see all that often, but is one that I really like. I think what like I, I think what I like about the idea of songs as possessing a, a, some kind of magical capability is the idea that um, whatever it is, like, the idea that the natural world upon which the magic is being worked um, has an ear that yeah um that you can like the it's not just tom that sings but like you're saying he describes old man willow the big tree in the forest that tries to kill mary and pippin as being a mighty singer um even when the hobbits sing like the trees react to it right and that there's there's um the notion that um that there is that that the world can um it's sort of it's sort of like a, a the natural world like has something very oblique in common with the human world this way in that it might not speak um, and it might not walk but it does sing. Wanda, right. what are your quick fire takes? <laughs> um, Okay, yeah. So my my quick fire takes for a second. I like I, I like freaked out. I was like, I don't have any. Um, <laughs> I haven't thought about a single thing, um, which I know my, is not true. You've thought about so many things. <laughs> so I'm always thinking. Um, so my quick fire takes are about some uh, some descriptions that J.R.R. Tolkien it, it lobs off in these two paragraphs. Um, I'm going to say that. Uh, at the beginning of chapter six, where he says, uh, the leaves of trees were glistening and every tree was, or excuse me, every twig was dripping. The grass was gray with cold dew. Everything was still and faraway noises seemed near and clear. Fowls chattering in a yard, someone closing a door of a distant house, uh, is as beautiful as Yeats. And, uh, on the other end of it, I'm going to say that later when he says the woods stood all round the hill, Later, when he describes uh, trees on a hill as saying, uh, the woods stood all around the hill like thick hair that ended sharply in a circle around a shaven crown, <laughs> is the worst, the worst description of anything I've heard. But in my also, life. I can picture exactly what he means. <laughs> yeah, he's talking about like a monk's haircut. Yeah, like a tonsure. Yeah. <laughs> it's very evocative. What are you talking about? Yeah, it just uh it just it just assaulted me when I read that. <laughs> um there's also a couple descriptions in here. This is the last one, this is my last one. I wanna say there's a couple descriptions in here that made me just like straight up roll my eyes like 
at one point he describes another hill in the forest and he says on the southeastern side the ground fell very steeply as if the slopes of the hill were continued far down under the trees like island shores that are really the sides of a mountain rising out of deep waters and it's like yeah that's that's plate tectonics uh that's <laughs> that's the thing Look, that we Wanda, know the man already. was an english professor <laughs> can't expect him to know about geology it's amazing actually that he uh that, that he stumbles ass backward into plate tectonics this way um <laughs> it's like it, it really it really does it really does give me uh faith faith in, in interdisciplinary study <laughs> And that's um, why everybody should go to a liberal arts college. Absolutely kids. not. I refuse to stand by that statement. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. All right. I'm, I'm calling time on this one. Okay. Um, Wait. I want to leave us with one final anagram. Yeah. What is which it? Which is, damn it, Bob Lowe. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh. it. That's it. Tolkien and was predicting the existence and the ineffability of one Rob Lowe. <laughs> oh. oh my god. Well. <laughs> that's well. all, folks. Uh, that's a wrap. We're gonna see ourselves out. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Wanda. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all of our listeners for joining us on this journey.